Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today on the show, your toaster is going to get its groove back. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Seth Nelson. I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Pete Wright. Our guest today has spent years in the publishing business, but it was only when her marriage broke up that she found the inspiration to write a book of her own, Available, a memoir of sex and dating after a marriage ends. It is a no-holds-barred look at post-divorce relationships, post-divorce rehabilitation, and the experience of women on a journey of invention. Author Laura Friedman Williams, welcome to the toaster. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be part of your toaster. (laughs) Part of our our toaster. Yes, join the toaster family. It it hasn't been working well, so we're trying to get its groove back. So we're glad you're here. Yeah, it's good. I'm a technological wizard, clearly. So, you know, you've really come to the right place. (laughs) It's going to be perfect. I, uh, you know, so uh, reading the book, uh, you talk about anything. Indeed. I mean... Straight up anything. Yeah. What is it? Uh, and, and I want to hear the story a little bit, just to get our listeners up to the point of, of what got you to write this book. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit of background? How, how did you arrive to the point where you thought, okay, I think I need to tell everything in this book and not lie to people and just talk like a big person? What, what got you to that point? Because a lot of people, I think there's a lot of fear that comes into honesty. How did you get over that hump? It's definitely a process. You know, I definitely started, when I started writing, it was not quite as out there as it became. I wanted to write a book about my honest experiences, and some of them were very funny, and some of them were funny in the moment of the sex act. So I thought, well, how can you write about that if you're not writing about it? Um, So I felt like my hand was a little bit forced. Like, if you're going to write a book about your sex life, you actually can't really not write about sex. It wasn't a language that I had. I didn't have the words to use to talk about sex in a way that was anything more than like how how often I had to have it or, you know, whether or not I was satisfied at the end of it. So it was it was a challenge for me. But the more I started doing it, the more I felt like this is a memoir. This is my story. I either tell it honestly and I put it all out there or I just don't do it. I have a choice. I don't I don't have to just put it all out there, but I really wanted to show what life as a middle-aged woman who's been in a 20-year relationship with one man, what her life looks like when that relationship ends. I wanted to be very authentic, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. Oh, man. I just got to the part, Seth, where she's like, she's connecting with a man and he's got this 80 pound German shepherd watching them during the act like that's the that is I'm reading this and it feels like it's not real because you can't like so many times I've seen those tropes right and those are made up so I read yours I'm like really really (laughs) well yeah I'll say really yeah Pete would have believed it if it was a 50-pound German Shepherd, but <laughs> yeah, right. pushing it to 80. 80. pounds pushes it way over the edge. Right. There's, uh, there's poop on. involved with the, the dog. Shark. It's just a whole thing. It's a whole experience. 
there were definitely, there has been a response like, oh, this would never happen. Or two funny responses. One, people say, I don't know if I believe her. This never would have happened. And other people say, I keep forgetting that this isn't fiction and this really happened. Well, I mean, all I can say is from my mouth to your ears, it happened. I, I don't make stuff up. I don't think I could have made it up. I don't really have that active an imagination. So um, the, these things happened. And they're part of the reason why I wrote the book, because I told friends about it happening you know, about the dog watching me, about my desire to get the dog out of the room. Also, like the first, I think, like the first number of people I slept with, they all had dogs. So it was like a, a progression of getting the dog out of the room, out of the house. You know, just, it was like, I kept trying to move the dogs further and further away from us um, because these were all divorced men who were very attached to their dogs and whose dogs clearly were going to always come first, which I understood except for the hour that I was there. So <laughs> I, I don't, I didn't make anything up. I don't just, Say, if you don't believe me, you don't believe me. You know, I, I wish I had, listen, if I had a more active imagination, I'd be writing a novel. No, no, no. I'll tell you, I believe every word of it. I think it's fantastic. People tell me all the time that, oh my God, you're a divorce attorney. You must have some crazy stories. And I will tell them, absolutely. And they're all from the last two weeks. <laughs> it, I, don't, I, I don't have to go back years and be like, oh, remember that case? Yeah. Like, it's just constant. So... I, I found it all believable because of all the stories that I hear on a daily basis um, on the good, the bad, and the ugly on what people do to each other and to themselves during the divorce during a divorce process. So um, I totally understood where you were coming from. On, and, and I am, as we've talked about more than once on the show, Pete, I love it when people are open, honest, and raw because that's the real way to connect with people. And sometimes they'll be like, did this really happen? And you'll be like, look, it happened. You can believe me or not. But really, whether it did or didn't isn't the point of this book, right? The point of this book is how, like we were kind of joking about the fact how you got your groove back. But I want you to talk about that. But when Pete and I were talking about your book and talking about speaking with you today, there's more to your life than just this book. Like what has happened since then? I mean, the book is in a moment of time that stopped but your life has continued. So if you're interested, I would love to hear about what's going on there as well. Yeah, I mean, I wrote the book. When I started writing the book, actually, I was only about um, set seven months out of my marriage. And so I was very much still in the moment of what was happening. That's when I was writing the proposal for the book. Um, and by the time I sold the book, when I looked back at the proposal, I thought, oh, I've come so far from even this. This is this feels too silly almost. It feels too much like a Sex in the City episode. I'm trying to make light of something. And that was the original goal. I'm going to make light of this and make this a fun, readable, you know, middle-aged woman sort of version of Sex in the City. But I, I kept deepening. I kept getting to deeper places of saying this is happening. And yet still, sometimes I can't get out of bed in the morning. So sometimes I feel totally free and like, oh my God, I get to be, I get to have 18 year old sex again. And then the next day I can't get out of bed. You know, I mean, I always did get out of bed because I had kids that needed to be fed and uh, sent to school, et cetera. But, you know, that whole feeding the kid thing gets uh, in the way. 
It's endless, truly endless. (laughs) They always not. You can't take a day off from that. Um, Although my kids are pretty good at getting like one meal a day, they've they're pretty good at like understanding. They're self sufficient enough. No, they just don't eat until I feed them. Okay, we're gonna put that under. We're gonna put that one under attorney-client privilege and maybe mark that one out. You know. Thank you. I appreciate that. So. What has happened is that I have actually in my, my, my libido, I guess, has kind of calmed down a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm in a, I, I'm in a relationship with one man now. Um, it's been a couple of years and he was number six in the book and he's stuck around and he's still in the picture. Um, and I'm sure that's how he loves to be referred to as number six in the book. He loves it. He loves it. I mean, honestly, he does. He tells everybody, oh, I'm number six. You know, it's like he's uh, he's like he's getting his 15 minutes of fame out of being number six. Um, so he doesn't mind. And he's also like, you know, for a while when it was a little bit like, is it cool to be number six? Or like, is that weird? And I was like, you number six stayed. Number yeah, right. Number five doesn't have that. <laughs> <laughs> right. You outlasted seven, eight, nine. Like, you, you Come on. So I feel that for him. Um, And, you know, I don't have as much interest. I don't have the time or the energy, really, to be constantly, like, going on my dating apps or looking for men. I mean, we just came out of a pandemic, so that wasn't really possible. So I think the pandemic changed a lot because we were all in such isolation. And there were times where I thought, he and I will never make it through this. This is just too much time together. Like, now all of a sudden, we're, you know, when we were together, it was just us. Like, we could never see friends or really go out and do anything. We were also living in New York City when there was a curfew uh, imposed because of all the protests and things related to Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we endured all of that. I also, during the pandemic, lived with my ex-husband and three children in our house upstate in the country. Uh, We made it almost three months together before one of us was going to die. And um, at that point, I suggested that he be the one to make a hasty retreat. Um, So, you know, there have been a lot of things that have happened in our lives, um, some for the better and some for the worse. You know, I think the one thing I'm really aware of is it's been three and a half years now since um, my ex-husband and I became exes. And the further I move from the relationship and the marriage, the more independent I become. And also the more I realize he's not my husband anymore. So that's been a process for me because for a long time, I felt, I used the word husband-ish. He felt very husband-ish to me. He was still the guy I'd call to say, what do I do? My computer's not working or how do I manage this? So I would still, you know, put him as my emergency contact in the doctor's offices because he still felt for all intents and purposes, like my husband. Well, and convenient, right? It's hard to figure out who the next person is to serve that role, I imagine. And through it. Okay, so let's just talk about this for one minute, Laura, because this is going to go under when people say this didn't really happen. So for um, a long time, I was dating my current girlfriend and we split up for a couple of years and thankfully we're back together. I always like to say that I messed it up and she took me back and I'm forever <laughs> grateful. Um Previous to that, I was like seeing the doctor. I was getting ready for a surgery and I updated my emergency contact with my current girlfriend. And just recently, I went back to the same hospital to have a procedure. And they say, Who should, would you like to be your emergency contact? 
And I'm like, well, who is it now? And I'm like, oh, no, that's not a good one. <laughs> like, <laughs> that, that's, that, that's the former girlfriend. I, I think that would have been like, pull the plug. Like, we're done. You know? <laughs> but what's interesting about that is years and years I have been practicing law. And it, not until just recently when that experience happened to me, did I add to my little letter, update your emergency contact information on all of your accounts and your medical stuff because it doesn't really necessarily occur to you that that's going to pop up. So um, you never know where it will be. So what what made you in your mind or your heart or your, your being make that change to say, I need an, a new emergency contact person? How did you get there? I don't know that I really would have gotten there on my own. I think he kind of forced it for me by, you know, I think that I felt for those few years that I was still like always that I came first still because I was the mother of his children um, because we'd had such a long history together. And over time I could see his allegiance shifting to his new relationship. And I knew that I was not going to, that it was that he, she was going to come before me. And so how could I, you know, how could I put my faith and trust in somebody who no longer holds me up here? And even though he stepped out on our marriage and our marriage ended because he had an affair, even then, and I still felt very loved by him and like he'd made this mistake. It was, it was a big mistake, but it was also human and it happened and he still loved me. I still was able to say that. It's really the first time that I'm feeling like somebody's becoming before me. And that is what made the shift for me. Um, and and I think that it's still complicated. I'm still not sure what the answer is on that emergency form. I don't want to put the burden on my children. My eldest is 21, but I don't want to put that on her. Uh, my mom is 79. And I also feel like, doesn't a mother ever get to stop worrying about her kids? You know, it doesn't seem fair yeah. to her either. Yeah. Um, Pete's got nothing going on. You can just write his name in. <laughs> you know You're what? Good. I'm so fine. far away, though. He's 3,000 <laughs> miles away, different time zone. I don't know. I, Pete, let's talk about when you turn your uh, okay. phone off at night. Okay. All right. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> I I think it's really I I think that's a fascinating question and it, what what I'm hearing in my head when as you're describing your relationship with your husband and his, or your your former spouse and his uh, experience it sounds like oh maybe he already changed his emergency contact and you start to feel that like that is a that's a distance building kind of thing that, that increases the distance and I I think you can you can you can sense it when it happens. Yeah. Right? I did sense it. I sensed it. There is a, a passage in the book uh, we're, we're talking about uh, somebody named uh, Johnny. And uh, you were waiting for Johnny outside in front of the car, and uh, there's somebody uh, howling at you from a window up above, and you speak to yourself here. Uh, and you say, quote, I'm already judging myself more harshly than she possibly can when Johnny gets into his car. I'm tempted to yell up to her, don't judge me. My husband of 27 years shattered my heart, and I'm trying to put it back together. I'm just starting to figure this out at the most infinitesimal level, so be kind. That is an provides for me an anthem to my experience reading the book. And and there are two pieces of it that I think are so fascinating for anybody listening who's in this sort of rebuilding stage. First, there's a part of me that's connecting to you as a 20-year-old, like the pre-married person who is sort of living out this dating experience that you never got. 
right? And then there's this part that's like, I now I need to learn how to be this person that I am now after 27 years with the same man. How do you, do, do you ever have a sense of that division yourself? Because for me, as I'm reading the book, it's pretty clear. Like, there are two women I'm reading about in the book. <laughs> Is there, are there two women for you? You know, I always feel like I've got this. I see what's happening. I'm a very introspective person, and I like to think I'm very self-aware. So I always think, like, I see what's happening. I know what's happening. Um, I see what I'm doing. And then in hindsight, I look back and think, oh my God, I had no idea what I was doing. I was reeling. I was reacting. I was putting myself in unsafe situations. The Laura today would scream at the Laura from, you know, 2019 and tell her to get out of the street, tell her to get out of that man's apartment. You know, there's a million ways in which I am judging myself today of the things I did. I I don't judge myself that harshly because I also feel like I had to learn. And I guess I got lucky that I didn't get too hurt along the way. But um, it is very confusing when the last time you've dated a person is when you're 20 and childless and really just you're still on your parents' health insurance. And then now you're 47 and, uh, you know, you're 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 legal now. Somebody could actually buy you a drink and you wouldn't have to pull out a fake ID Um, and you've given birth three times you know, so, and you own property, you know, you're like a real adult now. So you've got the trappings of an adult life, but inside you still know what dating is like from a teenage perspective. So I think it's fair to say there were two of me and that I probably am a little bit more of an adult now in my, in my relationships, although I'm an adult, uh, on my own terms. I think it's very important to say that it's on my own terms. I do not want to replicate what I had. So when I was 20 years old and looking for a relationship, I was looking for a husband and a father for my children. I really wanted kids. Uh, That was very important to me. I wanted them young. I wanted a bunch of them. And I, I got that, you know, I got my husband, I got the kids. I, I don't want, uh, anything now, but a companion, you know, sometimes, I think that is so important. What you said for people listening out there is you're not trying to replicate what you had, right? You're at a different stage of your life and you're looking for something that was much different. Obviously, you're not looking to have more kids. You're not looking for a father of your children to be. You're looking for someone to, you know, walk this earth for as long as you have with you. And I find it very interesting these days that. Um, kind of, if you look at Hollywood back in the day, there was always what they used to call, you know, the derogatory term sort of was the trophy wife. And now it's like the power couple, like there's a shift in our society, right. On some of these issues. Um, but I think that that happens when you get divorced and then you look at your own life and you're like, what do I want my life to be? Does that include bringing someone else into it? And if so, it's now going to be on my own terms. Not that you don't compromise on things, but you're not going to compromise the core of who you are anymore because that leads you to where where you don't want to be. I've got to interject here because I think this is, so much of the book can be read as salacious, right? And that leads to this sort of false tropey interpretation of you finish this marriage, you divorce, you're, you're dealing with the grief and the heartbreak that comes with it, and now you're really living some sort of glory days 
trope, right? That's like, oh, I need to recapture my youth and and do all the things I never could. But I, as and you know, I'm I am not divorced, but I'm what I'm hearing from both of you is that it's much more complicated and nuanced than that. That is not the yeah. that's it. It's not the Hollywood experience. No, I don't think it is. And I think part of the problem is that we're still, the Hollywood experience is still based, in my mind, on the happily ever after. And the happily ever after is almost always uh, involves hitching yourself to another person. You know, and I see this a lot on you know, social media accounts also when I, people I follow who are divorce coaches or, um, you know, inspirational speakers. And it's sort of like, listen, I was, I was married, I was unhappily married all these years. And now I've got this partner and like, it's so amazing. I never thought I'd find a partner like this. Life is so great. And that's really not, uh, something I, I want to ever say. What I want to say is, uh, my divorce, my marriage was good and then it was bad. And now I want to celebrate that I'm on my own and I don't want to hitch my wagon to anybody else's. Maybe someday I'll change my mind, but it's for me, the happily ever after is not that I am now with somebody else. The happily ever after is that I am, I found myself, whoever I am today. I'm going to take it a step a little bit further in the inquiry on that, because from my perspective, I've found myself and with my girlfriend now, I am at my best. She absolutely brings out the best in me, but that doesn't happen unless I became comfortable being on my own, comfortable in my career, comfortable in my parenting. And not that I don't make mistakes and that I'm always trying to improve. Pete knows we talk about it all the time. I'm always challenging myself in new and different ways. But that is fulfilling to me. And dating, for me, after divorce was very easy because I was no longer worried about, am I finding the right one? I I was no longer worried if someone didn't want to go out with me again and like how that was going to impact me. I was like, really? The last time I split up with someone, I was worried about when I was going to see my kid and what we were doing with a house, you know, and how the kids are going to be. Like the fact that you don't want to go out next Thursday night is really not a big deal in my life. And then when you tell them that they get all offended. And then I'm like, I don't know why you're offended. You're breaking up with me, you know, <laughs> but okay, sorry. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's so, but, but that's part of finding who you are and being more um, in tune with yourself and knowing what you need to do and, and um, to, to live a content life. I, I'm not big into happily ever after. I'm not even big into, I want my kid to be happy because happy mm. is an emotion, mm-hmm. right? And it comes and go. If you got a kid who's happy at a funeral, you got a problem. <laughs> okay. So, and that's just our society. We say we want yeah. happiness. And I just translate yeah. it. I want my son to live a fulfilling, you know, life and, and to make him make his path and to have his journey. But in within that will bring happiness along the way, but you don't, you know, you don't necessarily be happy-go-lucky all the time, right? I just don't yeah. think that's where the world works. I, I remember my mom saying that to me, like, you know what? Um, it's hard. Like, my mom was so devastated for me when my marriage ended. And she said, you know, we have this emphasis on our kids being happy. And it's and our t- happiness is tied into our children's happiness. So I can't be happy because you're not happy. And she said, and I think we've got it wrong. I think that what we need to instill in our children is not the need to be happy all the time, but just the ability to be resilient because you have to know that you're strong and you'll come back from it. And I, and I remember thinking that and a little, 
later, my daughter was home from college visiting and she said, mom, you seem so much happier now. And I said, I think I'm happier because I've redefined happiness. It's no longer about like bouncing out of the house and greeting the world. It's about being peaceful. My happiness is now defined by how peaceful I feel. If I feel at peace with myself, I feel happy. And so I, I carry that forward that that is enough. That is what I want. It, a lack of internal strife, a, a sense of I am where I should be. That brings me peace. If I have clarity, I have peace. So I, ch- I try to achieve inner peace now more than I say I try to achieve happiness. Well, that, I think that is so uh, illustrative of, of a point that I would really like to get across here, which is happiness is a learned response to stimulus, right? There, and it, it takes me back to the great, great Seinfeld episode where Jerry's uh, dating a woman who, who she's a crier, right? It's the big crier episode. And she drops a hot dog on the ground and she starts bawling. And then a minute later, she gets a call that her grandmother has passed away. And she's like, well, you know, that happens. And it's not a big deal, right? I think about that all the time. Like, there is a way, as you describe, Laura, that, that you can retune your response to the things that, that make you happy, that bring you joy, that gives you that surprise sort of shock that life is well worth living on a day-to-day basis. And I think coming out of a divorce, as we have heard for a number of seasons now, it's hard to retrain out of grief. Yeah. It's really hard. And I think that if you, I think there's a lot of framing. There's a lot of framing that we do for ourselves on a daily basis of uh, how we perceive ourselves. Like, do we perceive ourselves as a victim, as the loser of a situation, as the one who got dumped, the one who got left behind? I mean, the way we frame our perception of ourselves is huge. And for a long time, I did perceive myself in some really negative ways. I perceived myself as like the biggest loser of all time, very damaged and broken because I thought, I think I look good enough at, at, you know, my midlife that my husband should want to stay with me. I'm smart. I'm fun. I cook really nice dinners. Our home is immaculate. So if he doesn't want me anymore, if he's rejected me for another woman, then he sees something in me that nobody else can see. Not even me. I can't even see what he sees. And it must be so bad that he had to go and find love elsewhere. And that made me feel very negative about myself. And I remember one day talking to this, um, we'd been seeing this couples therapist. We'd actually already decided that we were going to get divorced, but we were seeing this couples therapist to help us sort out co-parenting issues. And I said, he's just damaged me so badly. I feel so damaged. And she said, "I, I really don't like that word. You're not a damaged human being. You're just hurt. And you're, you're in recovery. You're grieving. You're not damaged. And I thought that was so powerful for me. The grieving process is it's real. It is something you're going through and people go through when they're going through a divorce. And as a divorce practitioner, as a lawyer that deals with this every day, part of what I do that my clients sometimes know and sometimes don't is I evaluate where they are in the grieving process. Mm. And sometimes what will happen is a potential client might call and just say, well, I'm just thinking about it. You know, the word divorce has come up and my friend said, I really need to talk to a lawyer. So I'm talking to you, but I'm not ready yet. And then a year or two later, they're calling me like, I'm ready. I need, like, (laughs) I'm done. I'm not. And I'm like, whoa, like, okay, now we got to deal with the legal divorce. I know emotionally you're now ready, but it's not going to go that fast. And, And that grieving doesn't always happen in a straight line and step by step it comes and goes and sometimes they'll be like i just want out 
I'm done. Give yeah. it all away. And then I'm like, I can do that. We can sign that document. Let me pull out the goals that you told me at the beginning. And now you're going against that. I think it's because you're grieving. I think you're in the the bargaining stage or I just don't care stage. I just want it done stay. And like, there's all this stuff. And once you get to acceptance and you can be more level-headed about it and, and start moving your life in a direction that is more positive for you, it gets a lot easier. But it's grief and we should call it grief. And we should be, when you can understand that's what you're going through at the moment, then maybe we'll kind of take a breath and step back and it, and it won't be as hard. I think that's a very fair point and a compassionate point of view, because I think what a lot of people don't realize is I didn't. I mean, how many people did I know growing up whose parents were divorced? And I just thought, <laughs> I'm going to guess a lot because yeah. <laughs> I think we're in the same generation. That's yes. a lot. Like, and most of my friends came from divorced homes. So, and my father had died when I was young and my mom remarried and the man she married had been divorced. So it was all very familiar and comfortable for me. And I didn't see it as, you know, because my father had died when I was young and my mom was widowed at such a young age. To me, that was like the absolute worst thing that could happen, you know, that you could grow up and never know your parents or that you could be left on your own. And that's pretty bad. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. That is really hard, but divorce is death. And when you, I don't, I think it's very hard for people to understand that when they haven't been divorced, but when you have your uh, hip attached to somebody else's, whether that's for two years or 30 years or more, um, and you are severed from them, you are, you will feel broken. And it is a death because that person as their role in your life is dead it's over. And, um, that was really hard for me to wrap my head around. Like he's here, my husband's anymore. I'm grieving for him, but he's right in front of me. He's still a dad to my kids. So he's not dead Two of my kids aren't even speaking to him. So is he kind of dead because he's useless to me right now as their dad? You know, there were so many issues and I, I wish, I think that, you know, I hope anybody who's listening to this, who has friends or parents that are getting divorced just knows Divorce is brutal. No matter how kindly and lovingly you do it, you still have to separate yourself from a person you once really loved. And that's painful. Gets to that simple, not easy. That You may yeah. be able to find an attorney who can make the divorce process simple, uh, but it will very likely never be easy. I couldn't agree more. And just to kind of punctuate that, Laura, on what you're saying, I also feel that not only is it um, just so painful and difficult, um, but people just don't understand it unless they've been through it. Yeah. Um, and so that's part of the reason we, we do this podcast is to reach out to people and say, there's a whole lot of people out there that have been through it and we know what you're going through. And um, we're just here to help and, and get you through today. And, and maybe you can pass that forward on tomorrow to someone else because it's not easy. It's never easy. And I'm very fortunate. I'm very close with my former spouse, but that didn't happen overnight. It took some time. It, you know, we gave each other space after we got divorced, which I think was healthy for both of us. And, um, ultimately we, we were both very focused on our, on our kid who is amazing. And, um, I'm a little biased, of course, but um, <laughs> we we work well together when it comes to him, and and that's always been the most important. And our we knew that our relationship ultimately was going to impact our child, and and that's and but it takes time. And 
you know, we were married for three years. My girlfriend calls it a long weekend. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, <laughs> like, so, but you know, that's much different than 27, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. It, it still all happens. And so no matter where you are, how long you've been married, how many kids you had or didn't have, you know, you, and it's different when you are married as opposed to when you date someone for a long time and then you break up. Well, I think also part of what you're giving up, and this is why I think it doesn't necessarily matter how long you've been together, you're giving up your vision of your future together. So when the, whether it's three years or 30 years or whatever, if you think that is the rest of your life, like for me, getting married was not like, oh, I'll give this a try. You know, there's always divorce. Like this was it for me. You do or die in this marriage. You will make it work. And so the having to adjust to the fact that it was not going to be forever, having, having to give up the future, you know, whether or not you've been in a long-term relationship of three years or 30, giving up the future is pretty hard for anybody. You really have to like find your footing again. Um, You have a vision of how your life is going to be. And I liked my vision. Uh, my vision was very comfortable and happy. So giving up something that was comfortable, safe, loving, secure was, why would I give that up? Why would I, why would I walk away from that to go into the unknown so I could have more sex? I mean, it's not the worst reason, but it's, it's you know, it's not necessarily, it wouldn't have been my driving force if somebody had offered it to me. Like, you can either go live a, go, you know, be an 18-year-old again, uh, uh, live like you're 18 or keep this marriage, uh, it wouldn't even have been a question for me I- until my husband cheated on me. But you know, this is the thing I think is most interesting is that is how easy it is to take uh, this journey of sex and discovery and just make it a journey of sex and discovery. Then all we've done is rewritten Porky's. You know what I mean? Like it's just, <laughs> it's sort of empty. And it, it, yeah. this is, this is uh, as it, as you get through the book, like it's it's not really an experience of sexual reinvention. It, reinvention. It's, a, it's kind of an ex- exploration of how sex unlocks so many other opportunities for change. And Thank you for seeing that. Yes. I think it's really important because it it as as titillating as the the sequences themselves can be as funny as they can be uh it it is it is first and foremost really the story of what happens the next day for you personally and I think that is an incredibly generous act on your part to share that piece and not cuz otherwise it's just uh dear penthouse I never thought I would be writing this letter <laughs> right and, and so yeah. I I hope anybody who's, who's that, curious about the book kind please of- that kind yeah. of flows off your tongue a little too easily. <laughs> um, hey, hang on. I have to close my journal. Uh, <laughs> I've been talking to you for a long time, man. And that one just seemed a little too real. <laughs> oh, God. Outed. Outed on the podcast. No. Well, well I, yeah. I do I do think it's an, an incredibly uh, generous exploration on, on your part. Uh, and, and I just love the whole idea of trying to figure out, like, when you're turning the pages in your book of just being married and then get to a page after your divorce that's the first page that's blank. Uh, that metaphor is is very painful and real uh, to figure out. So uh, here I am, you know, in the catbird seat, right? I'm 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 married. But I was sitting there on the couch <laughs> last night with my wife and, you know, we're at 22 years. And I was I, I had spent uh, uh, some hours yesterday afternoon uh, reading the book and 
it hadn't really crossed my mind until we're sitting there. We were watching Schmigadoon, and our t- our feet. You know, it's very hot, so we were sitting kind of far apart. But our feet were just touching. Our toes were touching, bare feet. And I got choked up at the thought of like, what would it be like if I had to go through this process? That that feeling of emptiness is. Like it, it is just doing this show is incredibly motivating to keep working on my marriage and that's and, very touching. And do that. I'm a little so choked it, up too now. So, it's yeah. really it's yeah. but, well, you're you're welcome. And you're, yeah. a, a divorce <laughs> podcast about saving your relationship, and Pete does the hard work at home. Right. <laughs> like, how, and how know, great right. marriages and how awesome <laughs> marriage can be. <laughs> wow. So, uh, but but there is the my, my last question as we get to wrapping up, Laura. I really do not not that it's about me. Uh, let's talk about how you think about me. No, the <laughs> you the, the real question so is how how you use that experience in your emotional sort of journey with new men, not your sexual relationship, but we'll say number six, who's hanging around. This experience of like being able to to explore and not be too guarded, right? Do you have guidance for uh, other people who are in the same quandary? How do you open up and not be too inclined to protect yourself? You know, it's easy. It's, we've been together for like two and a half years now. So where I am today is very different where I was. When I read back parts of the book in our early days, there was a lot of self-protection that was happening because I was always afraid of getting rejected. I didn't even always know what I wanted, but I didn't like him being the one to decide. So, you know, for example, I write about an experience when I invited him over for dinner with me and uh, my, my youngest daughter and just said, you know, just come over as a friend and we'll just hang out together. Like it was a Friday night and I was going to be home with nothing to do. And I thought that could be fun. And he was like, oh my God, no, the last thing I want to go is like to your house and make slime with a bunch of six-year-olds. And I was like, okay, I got to go. I got fun. I was, I was heartbroken. I thought, wow, I thought I knew this guy and he seemed to really like me. And yet the idea of being in my house and my family, he's just like, he's disgusted by even the notion. I thought this might be it for us. We talked about it, you know, and I understood that it wasn't about me or my kids. It was about his, you know, where he was in his own life with his kids. But we had a lot of bumps like that. I talked about another time where I slept over the first time at his apartment. And in the morning, he woke up early, got dressed, uh, kissed me goodbye and told me to lock the door behind me (laughs) because he was going to the farmer's market and to yoga. And he left and I got out of bed and I made the bed and I got dressed and I went home and I thought, well, that was fun while it lasted. You know, that was like four months in. And I said, there's no way I'm going to be rejected by another man again. You know, this is just not, this is not for me. Then I'm not going to be with somebody who can't, understand my value. Now it's so different. Um, You know, now I think we really respect that we both need our own, we have our own friends, we have our own children, we have our own families. Sometimes that means we can do things together and sometimes we can't. He respects that I like to be with my kids without him. Well, really, Laura, what you're really talking about though is just communication. Yes, that's very true. In in 95% what you said that you get hurt by uh, with this guy, once you talk to him about it, it had nothing to do with you. It had to do with him. It's just how you perceived his stuff, right? right? And that's what we talk about all the time on the show is that as hard as it is, most of the stuff that these other people are doing is not about you. It, you put someone else in your situation, they're going to do the same thing to that person. You put the next one in, they're going to do the same thing to that person and the next one. I mean, 
So as, as hurtful and as personal as it feels, it's usually their shit that they're dealing with. And it, and it's just, there was a trigger that came up like, Hey, come over, make slime. And it's like, Whoa, like, okay. Making slime's not that bad with six-year-olds. If it's not your deal, it's not your deal, but okay. But why did it have such a strong negative response? What is going on there? That's the real issue. That's the real communication. I I think you're actually make a very good point. Cause I think one of the reasons why number six is stuck around uh, so long is because he is willing to look at what he does and say, I reacted this way because of this. This is what I can give right now. This is what I can work on. This is what I can't give. And so we are, we're able to communicate that way. So he responds accordingly. It's not like, I just don't want to come over. And like, that's the end of it. I also think, I just want to say, it's very important to me to say this, that part of all of this is that I feel it's very important for women or men to stay true to themselves and what's important to them. I will not give up the things that I've discovered about myself that are important to me to maintain a relationship. I want to be in a relationship where somebody respects me and loves me so much that they can accept the parts of me that I need to maintain for myself. So if that means I say to you, I'm never going to want to get married. I don't want to live with you. Uh, I want to maintain the right to be non-monogamous. You have the right to walk away and find somebody else because those things don't work for you. Or you can stop and think, well, I love you too. I respect you too. And uh, let's see how long we can play this out. And so like, that's what number six has been able to do. And that's why he's still in the game. Well, really what you're doing there, Laura, in my view, is you're setting boundaries for yourself. Yes. And you're, you're, you're identifying them and you're communicating them. Now he has the absolute right, like you said, to say, well, I want to get married. And if you don't, then I'm out when, and, and you understand that's just a choice. And, and all that is to me is mature people saying, here are my boundaries here's what I'm comfortable doing. And really what you're doing is making a request. And that's all we can ever do in these relationships is you have a request. I would like to stay with you as long as we don't get married. I am having this request that we don't get married. And if he goes, "Mm, I'm not going to accept that because I want to get married. Well, then it doesn't work. Right. And, but having those clear boundary discussions and, um, being able to articulate them and understand that that might be okay. Well then I'm out. And and we, we all do that in all of our relationships, right? There's things that, that I'm sure that Pete um, is not allowed to do at the house because there is a boundary. And if he crosses that boundary, (laughs) there's going to be something bad that's going to happen. Right. I want to say for the record, writing letters to uh, pornographic magazines is one of those things that I I don't, (laughs) I don't do. Right. Only because it's a boundary Too set bad. by your wife. Let's be clear now. <laughs> I'm a very creative writer and I don't write anything to a pornographic <laughs> Do they still accept okay, those letters? Do they still I don't know. It's all, it's all by text. It's all TikTok. Yeah. See, I was just I was just seeing if you're going to bite yeah. if you knew the answer. That's what that was. I didn't really care. <laughs> Leading the witness. Objection. Look, I think that all of this that you're talking about, these are gifts that uh, 18, 20, 22-year-old Pete would never have been able to accomplish, right? Having those kinds of conversations is a gift of maturity, is a gift of, you know, of the of middle-age experience. And and that's something to hang your hat on, right? That That's really cool. Um, and and uh, these are all great stories in Available, a memoir of sex and dating after a marriage ends, which you can find 
uh, everywhere finer books are sold and audible and narrated by you. That's an accomplishment. Well done. Yeah. I mean, I can't listen to it because when I do, I just cringe. I've tried. I think I've gotten to the second hour and I'm like, God, I feel so That's bad. 11, for 11 hours and 28 but minutes. People no, tell me they you love sound it, so. great. <laughs> you sound terrific. So uh, that, that is uh, that is it. What else? Anything else you want to talk about? You want to plug? Where, where do you want people to go to, to find you? Just go buy the book and then that's it? Or is there more? You can pre-order it because it's not going to be available in the United States on Amazon until September 14th. So it can be ordered pre-ordered there. It was released in England first. Uh, but the audio and the ebook are available right this minute. And um, I'm also I'm on Instagram on uh, Laura Friedman Williams. That's Friedman with an IE. I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm on Medium. I do a lot of writing on Medium. So we'll LinkedIn, put all the links Facebook, in the you name it. I'm, yeah, I'm, we'll get you. I'm all over. And I actually love to hear from people. I, I love to hear people's stories and I love it when readers feel something and want to connect with me. So if people want to reach out to me, um, I will respond. Outstanding. Laura Friedman Williams, thank you so, so much for joining us, for uh, sharing your story, uh, and to everybody for downloading and listening to the show. We appreciate your time, your attention. We appreciate you doing the work. Uh, on behalf of Laura Friedman Williams and Seth Nelson, America's favorite family law attorney, I'm Pete Wright. We'll catch you next week right here on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. Seth Nelson is an attorney with Nelson Coster Family Law and Mediation with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, How to Split a Toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of Nelson Coster. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.